0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 33. text is on screen. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For, all, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged." The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of, congregations of the Lord's people. This is God's word.
1: Well, good morning, church. It's good to see all of you this morning gathering in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Welcome. And for parents uh, with kids through, I believe, pre-K, they may to be dismissed for children's church. And a reminder to pick your kids up right before, right after you take uh, communion there's a lot of celebrations going on today so happy father's day happy juneteenth and happy heat advisory day in a place without ac so welcome Uh, regardless of what you're celebrating today it's good to have you all here we are wrapping up our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, even though there's a couple more chapters to go. The reason for that is we did a couple of the cha- one of the chapters out of order, chapter 15. We skipped ahead and did 1 Corinthians 15 because it's about the resurrection around the season of Easter. Then we went back to chapter 14, which we'll wrap up today. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday in 1 Corinthians, and we will tackle the last chapter, chapter 16. After that, we will switch to our Summer in the Psalm series. We tackle 10 Psalms every summer. So we're in Psalm 71 through Psalm 80 uh, this summer. That will take us all the way up to September. And uh, this coming, uh, actually a couple Sundays now, July 3rd, we won't actually be gathering here in this space. We will be gathering with uh, three other uh, evangelical free churches, that's a denomination that we're a part of, at another free church that meets on the east side of uh, St. Paul at Payne Avenue Evangelical Free Church, and we'll be gathering there for July 3rd. So if you're in town, we'd encourage you to go there. Uh, If you're not, uh, we still will be posting a message online, a reflection on Psalm 71 uh, for you to listen to if you are traveling that weekend. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the passage today. Let me pray first uh, for our time in the Word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts, that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds, that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills, that we may desire your ways. And we pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. First Corinthians includes a couple verses, yet again, that are notoriously difficult And controversial and starts the type of interpreted fights uh, that that Christians try to avoid and if you don't know what I'm talking about we didn't actually read it in the scripture uh, reading today but it includes passages and verses that came after the verses that are read so if you're wondering what those verses are let me just read them at the beginning here so you know what you're in store for 1st Corinthians 14 34 through 35 part of our passage says this quote I'm not saying this this is Paul (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but should be in submission as the law says if they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in the church happy father's day uh, so <laughs> just giving you something to discuss during brunch time something to look forward to you. One of the things I know that there might be some folks visiting. We had a wedding here yesterday, so there might be some extended family and friends in town. And you are probably wondering, what in the world are you doing? What are you thinking? Are you just trying to destroy this church uh, so that nobody comes back? Why? Why would you even include those verses in a sermon? And one of the things to let you know is, we typically at this church, we pick books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, and we preach through them. Whatever comes up, comes up. So even if it's difficult verses like this, we want to lean into it, try to understand what is being said, not only in its original context, but in our modern day context as well. And if it's difficult, so what? There are passages when we read passages at home that are that are really confusing, that are difficult, that might be divisive, but what better place than the church to come together in a gracious way to try to understand what in the world is going on. So that is what we're going to do. Uh, if you recall, too, I've, I've kind of unintentionally got myself in this mess because what I said in the beginning, that we switched out the order of 1 Corinthians a little bit so that we could lean into 1 Corinthians 15 during Easter for three Sundays. When I did that, uh, and I was I was looking at the church calendar, I wasn't looking at the secular calendar that I considered Mother's Day and Father's Day. So if you remember what happened is that the passage on Mother's Day was about wearing head coverings to church. Uh, And now this passage comes up on Father's Day. And I swear to you that this was completely unintentional. It was just me uh, accidentally stepping into some cultural landmines. So that's what's going on this morning. Uh, So this is how we're going to tackle uh, not only that passage, those verses, but the whole passage. We're going to unpack those, okay? Before we get to those, we need to consider the entire context of the reading today. So we're going to see how those verses connect with the overall passage that's really concerned about orderliness in corporate worship, in the worship gathering. So first we're going to consider how Paul addresses three things that in his context in Corinth Are causing disruptions when the church gathers for worship and then we'll consider why he cares why it matters so let's first consider the the issue of disorder in corporate worship look at verse 26 again let's remember the main point what then shall we say brothers and sisters when you come together each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction a revelation a tongue or an interpretation everything must be done so that the church may be built up. We continue to hear this main point. When the church gathers for corporate worship, the purpose of the gathering is to build one another up. It's not a selfish purpose. It's a purpose that's dependent and focused on the other to build up the corporate church in love. So hymns are sung and the scriptures are taught and a word is spoken so that others in the assembly can be encouraged in the Lord. But the problem is, as the great reformer John Calvin put it about this church in Corinth, is, quote, this is a church turned in on itself to the neglect of others. That's what Calvin said about this church. When the Corinthians get together, it gets crazy, and they lose focus on what really matters. This is what uh, Paul said to describe the matter back in verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone is speaking in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So part of the problem is there's there's so much chaos in the assembly. There's so much focus on self and individual spiritual gifts that it's causing confusion and disorderliness, and then there's people that will come in the church, and they don't know what's going on, including those that might be exploring the Christian faith. They're skeptics, they're inquirers, they're coming in to seek the ways of God, but they don't know what's going on. It's just a very chaotic and confusing corporate time of worship. So Paul wants to bring order to this chaos, and he gives instructions in three different areas to try to do that in this context. The first matter he deals with is speaking in tongues. Look at verses 27 through 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time. And if someone must interpret, and someone must interpret, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself or to God. Last week we tackled a little bit more in detail about speaking in tongues and what it is, and Paul is bringing it up again. And so the setting is a bunch of people are gathering and everybody's speaking in tongues at once, which is a language that nobody, if you're, if you're sitting next to somebody who's speaking in tongues, you don't know what they're saying. And if there's no interpreter especially, you don't know what is going on. So Paul gives these instructions into that chaotic situation to try to bring order. He brings practical guidance to them. He says that only one person should do this at a time. No more than two or three people at any particular gathering should do that. And even if that happens, there must be an interpreter. There must be somebody that unpacks it so that the assembly knows what's being said. And if there's no one there to interpret, then nobody should speak in tongues in the gathering. They should rather, if they speak in tongues, speak to, them, to, speak to themselves privately or to God. Again, just to be clear from last passage last week, Paul isn't against speaking in tongues. He's open to it, he speaks in tongues, and he says in verse 39 not to forbid speaking in tongues. The issue that he's taking is how it's being done, not that it's being done. The gift is being practiced in a disorderly way, and the guidance that he's giving is trying to bring a little bit more order to the chaos. But then he goes into prophecy, verses 29 through 32, two or three prophets should speak And others should weigh carefully what is being said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets." So prophecy in this context is someone applying the scriptures or theology for the edification and encouragement of God's people. It could be a bunch of different forms that it takes. It could be a devotional a testimony, or a word of encouragement. And in this setting, people are talking over one another. They're likely competing for attention when they're trying to unpack God's word. Multiple people are going, and some of them are really long-winded that they are not giving time to other people. Now, one of the things to remember is that the setting of this worship gathering would be a bit different than this or maybe your experience with more modern day corporate worship gatherings. This context would be a little bit more like a house church, maybe something you've experienced in a small group or a Bible study where it's a more intimate gathering where somebody is maybe in a Bible study context, opening God's word, you read it and you start sharing your thoughts on the scriptures, sharing your questions about the scriptures, and people give their take on what the scriptures are being said, and then other people weigh in on what that person just said, or maybe ask that person more questions and clarification. Or if it's kind of out of bounds a little bit, there's gentle pushback on what the person is saying about how the scriptures should be understood. That's what's going on here. And maybe you've been in an experience in a Bible study setting or a small group setting where this type of thing goes on, where you have something to say, but the one person that talks loves to dominate the entire time and doesn't give anybody else opportunity to say something or somebody says something really really crazy and nobody's there to in a gentle and loving way kind of gently push back and ask some questions there's a chaotic scene that's unfolding when people are sharing and expounding the the scriptures to one another now again before we get to the rationale of why paul cares about this stuff so much let's consider the verses that i opened up with verses 34 Through 35, as he tackles a third issue. Look at verses 34 through 35 again. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. As I said, difficult verses, controversial verses. You're kind of like, hmm, I'm glad I'm not in This guy's situation where i have to talk about this in the assembly on father's day right so what is going on here let me first give you some different approaches some different interpretations of this uh, set of verses here some view these verses as not original to the text but were later additions so they would say that paul didn't really write these words others another view say that paul is quoting a view of people that hold this view in corinth but he's quoting them in a way that he's disapproving. And still others say that just consider the plain meaning of the text. It means what it says, let's move on. I cannot give all the details about why I don't find any of these approaches satisfying, but let me give you a little bit of background. I do think Paul wrote these words, and it's not a later edition. And I also don't think he's quoting somebody else in a disapproving way. I think he's addressing an issue that's really going on in the local church of Corinth. And I would also say, those that say, well, let's just look at the plain meaning of the text, what that often fails to do is that it doesn't consider the actual context of the rest of the letter that, and the rest of the things that Paul wrote, nor does it consider how this language may have landed on the original readers in the original church. Those things matter. So here's my take on things. And admittedly, this is one of those passages where there is a lot of debate and it's very, very hard to understand what's going on. So with, with that disclaimer, here's my take on things, all right? First, we need to understand what does Paul mean by remain silent and not allowed to speak? Does this mean a woman can never have anything to say ever? Or in certain, in certain instances, he's giving the advice to refrain from speaking. Does this mean a woman should never offer a prayer? Or does it concern something specific within this context of worship gatherings? Whatever is meant in these verses, we have to consider elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. For example, in chapter 11, Paul writes in chapter 11 that he encourages women to prophesy and to pray in the corporate assembly. He's encouraging them to say something about God's word, about what God has been speaking into their lives, about offering a prayer for the saints. So earlier in the same letter, he has encouraged women to speak up about the Scriptures and about what the Spirit of God is doing in their lives. So in that context, we must know that Paul does not mean in any type of absolute sense that women should never offer a word or a devotional thought or a testimony or some type of exposition of Scripture from the front, because that would cancel out what he's already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In addition, we've got to remember the context. We are dealing with a context where Paul is addressing the worship gathering, where the saints come together to worship Christ in a corporate sense. And during this meeting, there is some sort of exhortation or encouragement that's given that's based on God's word in a setting where other people in the congregation are weighing what's being said. Remember that illustration about picturing yourself in a Bible study, and people are speaking up and weighing about what God is is saying to them, to the people that are there. These verses get even more specific in verse 35 because it indicates husbands and not men in general are part of the context, part of the puzzle. That's why he mentions in that verse or these verses, he mentions the law or how the scriptures reveal an ordering to marriage, how a wife relates to a husband. God has specific purposes for how a husband and a wife relate to one another, and it's not an artificial suggestion, but rather the ordering of God's purposes in this specific relationship. So that's some puzzle pieces. Now let's put it all together. What is going on here? It may be that one of the things adding to the disorder of the corporate worship gathering in Corinth is marital tensions that are flaring up in this part of the worship gathering. Let me unpack this again by trying to get you to think about this in like a house church, Bible study type of setting. The group leader asks a question about the passage and one of the guys shares his takes on things. Other people weigh in about it and may ask some questions to discern what did this guy mean and maybe even gently push back on things that is unclear or something that should be corrected. Then the man's wife weighs in, but she doesn't have the same posture towards him as the other people in the group. It's a posture that comes across as, shall we say, a little salty for reasons that we might not understand. Maybe it's just a general comfort level in addressing one's spouse, or more aggressively, uh, because they had a little bit of a fight on the way to the Bible study. Regardless, what happened is that she addresses her husband and his take on Scripture in a way that is disrespectful to their marriage relationship and brings a large amount of disorder to the meeting and if you've been doing church uh, long enough you may have been in a bible study small group setting where marital tensions have flared up and things got a little bit awkward if that hasn't happened yet it will happen to you where it's just like well that was awkward and you talk about it uh with your friends or your spouse on the way home like hopefully they figure that out right So, understood in this way, let me read these verses in an interpretive way. These are my words. So this might be a way that Paul would say it in a way to us, who don't have all the details about what's going on. He would say maybe something like this. When the church gathers, some women should discern when to weigh in and when to listen. For there is no excuse for speaking in that manner. Let them remember that the ordering of marriage, as the scriptures make clear, wives must respect their husbands that's Ephesians 5:33 if you have things to work out with your husband then don't interrogate him in front of everyone for a woman to treat her husband this way in the worship gathering is dishonoring and disorderly perhaps someone could object at this point and say like well why are women being singled out in this passage if that's what's going on well let me give you another example in Titus chapter 1 verses 10 through 11 Paul writes these words for there are rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deceptions, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be what's that word? Silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So here's a different context, a different situation. Paul says to Jewish Christians, these are Jewish folks that have come to Christ, that they should remain silent in worship because they're full of meaningless talk that's disrupting entire households. It's not that Jewish Christians should always remain silent, whereas Christians who are not Jewish, Gentile Christians, can say what they want. It's a rebuke to a specific group not to conduct themselves within Christian community in that manner, because that's what's going on in that situation. So here's something to remember then. There is certainly a scenario, therefore, where a husband can respond to his wife's take on Scripture in a way that dishonors the marriage and brings a large amount of disorder and disruption into the worship gathering or the Bible study. It can happen the other way, too. The only reason it's being addressed this specific way is because that was the specific situation in Corinth, just like there was a different situation when Paul was dealing with it in the book of Titus. So maybe if something was happening in Corinth, something was going on where the, where the fellas were getting a little fussy towards their ladies, there would be different words that he would have written. It would have probably sounded something like this. Again, my take on it, my words. He might have wrote this if it was the husbands doing this. When the church gathers for worship, some men need to know when to listen rather than talk, for there is no excuse for speaking the way that they do. Let them remember the ordering of marriage as the scriptures make clear: "Love your wife as christ loved the church that's again ephesians 5 33. if you have things to work out with your wife then don't interrogate her in front of everyone for a man to treat his wife this way in a worship gathering is dishonoring and disorderly so paul could have wrote those words too if the situation was different so that's how it fits in the overall text. He's dealing with specific situations in the church of Corinth that are making the the worship gathering disorderly, and he's trying to bring it into order, trying to bring it into focus so that the focus, again, is on Christ and building one another up in love. So why does this even matter to Paul? Now we get into the why. Look at verses uh, 33 and then 36 through 40 with me. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Then verse 36, Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So Paul's making some appeals here. One is to his own authority, which he says that it's not just his opinion, but that it's something that God commands, that his, his take on things is actually grounded in the Lord's command. That's why he says, I'm writing this to you is the Lord's command. He expressing in these directions, God's will, not his opinion. And he says, if you ignore it, you're not just ignoring me, you're ignoring the Lord's commands. And then when that happens, the Lord ignores you, which is a way that the Bible describes God's judgment. He also says, and he makes an appeal to other congregations, have a orderly way that they do the worship gathering. In Corinth, you might remember this from earlier sermons, they think they're the bee's knees. They think they're amazing. They think they're, they're super spiritual people. They're at a plane on understanding things that everybody else should look to them and aspire to be them. Paul is bringing them down a notch yet again, saying you've got to remember you are the outliers here. Look at how the other churches of God in other cities around the world conduct corporate worship. And nobody has the hot, disruptive mess that you have in your gatherings. Consider the global church is one of the appeals that he makes. And then finally in verse 33, he made an appeal to the very character of God. That God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace meaning that the way you conduct your worship gathering says something about who god is now if these are the principles that god is uh, that paul rather is basing uh his uh practical advice on how do these things apply to a present-day church in the city of minneapolis saint paul now here's some ways to think about it and here's three ways to whether it's this type of corporate worship or maybe you're coming from and visiting here another type of worship tradition Uh, denominational take on things, I think there are similar principles that we can all stand on based on what Paul is appealing to here. So here's some principles for why churches should conduct corporate worship in a specific way. First, Corporate worship must follow the scriptures. It must follow what God commands to be done in scripture. Paul is making an effort here to say that he's not just asserting his opinion on what churches ought to do when they gather. It's something that's grounded in God's word and the commands of the Lord. And in the Bible, we see very specific things that the Lord wants his people to do when we gather. It includes elements of preaching and singing hymns and offering prayers and celebrating baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are biblical elements that should never be absent from the church when they gather. I've, I've seriously been to church gatherings before where there's been barely, if not any, a lick of scripture that's ever being read. That's just wild to me because that's precisely one of the foundational things that God's people do when you get together is to get into God's word because all week long you're listening to the opinions of man. But here you get to hear the word of the Lord who revealed himself to us. So that's why we have to do things that are uniquely biblical and start there before we start adding extra things to the worship gathering. The second thing is that corporate worship considers church history. Paul exhorts us to consider what other congregations are doing. What common features do all churches need to embrace when we gather for worship? That is a good and and respectful question to ask. Church liturgy as early as the second century included two basic parts of corporate worship. The first half of corporate worship, when churches historically and globally to this day gather, included the preaching of God's word as the main component of why we are gathering together. And then the second half of the service is all about gathering around this table to remember the visible and tangible display of the gospel in the elements of communion. Eventually, these two parts in church history would would become what other people call the four walls of corporate worship. It's the gathering, that you're coming from your homes, you're coming from your neighborhoods, and you gather in a place with all of God's people, and then it goes to preaching, and then it goes to communing, and then at the end, it goes to sending, where there's a benediction and a sending song, and it sends you back into your mission field and into the world. If you study most aspects Uh, of, of corporate worship, they will include those four elements almost across denominations. And there's a historical precedent to that. And even when we consider those four walls, we incorporate other historical elements for how we do our liturgy here, including things like a greeting, a call to worship, scripture readings, a prayer confession, maybe a confession of the creeds, and finally a benediction. Fifth, or third and finally, third and finally, corporate worship must consider the neighborhood. It must consider the context, the culture in which you are gathering for worship. So Paul, to be clear, is not saying that the church in Corinth must be like every other church in the world in all of the details. He's been careful throughout this letter to acknowledge the unique ways that Corinthian culture is is being contextualized so that the people of God are preaching the gospel to them in a way that's unique to the city of Corinth. And we have other letters where Paul is doing the same thing, that there's unique ways, depending on the culture, depending on the neighborhood, that starts to shape the aspects of your corporate worship. If there's four walls of corporate worship, context determines or culture determines like what color are the walls going to be what kind of pictures are you going to hang up what is going to be the decor of the room and from culture to culture neighborhood to neighborhood tradition to tradition the corporate worship setting might feel a little bit different because it's adding those aspects to the foundational biblical and historical foundations of the church and so you're going to go to different churches with different expresses expressions there could be a corporate worship service that's meeting under a tree in the global south that has these elements in it but they express it in a unique way and you can go to the suburbs and go and there's going to be smoke machines and lasers and like it's going to be thousands of people but there'll be elements of that here because the way that suburban people think about life is very different than the global south and I could even add us urban folk to the mix as well. And even in, these, in, even in a city as diverse as St. Paul, Minneapolis, you can go neighbor to, to neighborhood and see different cultural expressions of the church because we have unity in worshiping Christ and the core biblical and historical elements of it, but have this beautiful diversity on how we express that in different contexts. Now, I want to conclude this message by going back to verse 33 where Paul says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So why, again, does Paul want an orderly service? It's not because he's some type of type A personality that wants to micromanage everybody's life. Paul wants an orderly service because a service like that is grounded in the very character of who God is. Or to say it another way, The way a congregation worships communicates to the people in the pews and people that are coming in to explore the Christian faith who God is. That's why it matters. You are communicating in a tangible way with the way that you worship who God is, what his character is, and what his attributes are. And we don't get to decide who God is. God is who he is. We get to discover who God is and then try to communicate who he is in an accurate way to the world and to the saints of God. That's what we do. We discover who he is because he's revealed himself, and then in corporate worship, we are seeking to accurately display who he is to the gathered church and the exploring world. This is what, 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 what yeah, yeah, I think one of the ways to picture it is if somebody is coming into this place, what are we communicating to them? In a similar way that maybe you've visited somebody's home uh, maybe gathered in a meal in somebody's home for the first time. They invited you into their house. This is the first time you went over there. And you just start, like, noticing things, right? What kind of meal is, are they serving? What's the type of food? How do they interact with me in hospitality when they're hosting me, right? What are the things they get excited about when we have conversations around the table? And then you might even look like, like what pictures are hung up in the room that says something about who this family is or my favorite thing to do if, if uh, you're like me is go to the bookshelf. I love seeing what's on somebody's bookshelf. What are they reading? Like what, what are the things that they're thinking about and processing because that too says something about the family. So too when somebody gathers here with us with the church family of God, What we ultimately want to communicate is not merely who we are as a local church, but we want to communicate in a very clear and passionate way who God is so that people walk out of here and say, I don't know everything about Christianity or what they're all about, but man... They are all in on Jesus and his death and his resurrection, like all in, obsessed, can't stop talking about him. And everything that they do is ordered around this person and his work and his continued work in the world. That's what we want to do. So that's the point that Paul is making here. You are communicating about who God is when you gather for worship. If your worship service is chaotic, then people may believe that God is chaotic. If your worship service is too orderly, then maybe it communicates that God is uptight. See, there's other ways of applying this, right? If your worship gatherings are made up of factions and cliques, then it communicates that God is divisive. If your worship gathering is joyless, then it communicates that God might be boring. This is why we take such effort to think about and be intentionable, intentionable, intention, intentionable. Yeah, I don't know about what we are doing. We want to do it with intention. There we go. We want to be, do this with intention and focus. And I think like that doesn't mean that we do everything correctly. I think there's a good. Uh, A way to assess ourselves of like what we do well and that's why I did this application like I don't think anybody would come in here and be like this church is really disorderly that's not our problem right but we have planted a church among all these colleges and universities and a portion of our city that has a lot of urban professionals and we are people that read the New York Times and we're thoughtful and we're intellectual and we're precise Right? And we're thoughtful, right? And one of the things that could happen if you're too orderly, it might communicate wow, like God really cares only about what I think, about my mind, but maybe not about my heart. And I think one of the things that we could do a little bit better as a church is not have just liturgy, but as one of my former pastoral residents said, we need liturgy that's lit. That's one thing that we could come alive to a little bit because we could say things very intellectually accurate, but we don't want people to walk away from the church gathering here and just think, I need to think about God in a correct way. We want people to gather here and experience God too because the Holy Spirit is here. And God is alive. And Jesus rose from the dead and he reigns over the nations. And he's still in everybody's business in a way that he wants to redeem and renew all things. And so one of the things we want you to feel in the depths of your soul when we preach about these things is that God is here, and he's real, and he's tangible, and if you're falling away from him, he's going to pull you back and wreck you with the gospel and put you back together in a way that you're truly human and you can truly flourish. That's why you gather together, not just to think correctly, but to be exposed to the living God who will disrupt your world and redeem it back together for his glory. So I think if Paul was writing to us, who are a little bit, thank you, my brother. Yes, that's right. I need to learn from last week. Brother, you need to pause so people can say amen, right? I just don't expect it. Uh, so yes, thank you. Amen. Because this is what we want. At the end of the day, I think what Paul would say, you would probably agree with my residents back in the day, great liturgy, guys. It just needs to be a little bit more lit. All right, let's go ahead and transition now to a time of communion.